Hi, I'm Colm O'Sullivan, and this is the Policy Options Podcast. I grew up and have always lived in the Toronto-Ottawa-Montreal corridor, or perhaps better known as the centre of the universe. I knew that the provinces to the west of Ontario and Quebec often felt that they were treated unequally in federal politics, but as an Easterner, I didn't understand why. It was an issue that fascinated me because it presented a question without a clear answer. Why does the West feel alienated? Loline Burdall is a professor and head of political studies at the University of Saskatchewan and has been studying the underlying causes of sentiments of Western alienation from her vantage point in Saskatoon. She recently wrote an essay for the IRPP's Centre for Excellence on the Canadian Federation that points to how these feelings developed and what can be done to quell them. She says that these feelings are not new. In fact, they originate in the very founding of the country in 1867, where an Eastern-centric view of the Federation has had ripple effects that have lasted to this very day. She also presents two ideas that will better include the West in decision-making and help Canadians get a better understanding of the Federation. So, Loline Burdell, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, you recently wrote an essay for the Centre of Excellence on the Canadian Federation. And in this essay, you outlined what you believe to be the source of Western alienation, and that being that Canada was created in a country centralized around Ontario and Quebec. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when Canada was formed, of course, the, the population base was very, very heavily in central Canada. And it, it made natural sense that the way the country was set up and the way the, the dominant political culture and how we understand Canada was defined was really around this, this central base. So we had Ontario and Quebec being the population centre, the centre of the economy, the centre of, of culture, all of these things. And over time, what we saw was a very central Canadian defined understanding of what it means to be Canadian, what Canada is all about. A lot of that definition wasn't necessarily something that resonated with people in prairie provinces in particular. We tend to talk about Western Canada, but BC sort of joined a lot of this discussion a bit later. But a lot of the things that were were of concern and, and defining for Central Canada were not so for Western Canada and for, for the prairies. And so, you know, there, there became a, a bit of a tension. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was born out of the idea that we should have a centralized institutional capital being Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, and this never extended west or what happened? Well, you know, it's, I think it's very, it's very natural that there's a tendency for where there's a dominant population uh, for, for that to be very defining for a country. Uh, I think the, the challenge was that the definition of the country perhaps didn't encompass the more prairie views of the country in a way that was satisfactory to a lot of people in the prairie region. So what we saw is that on the frontier west, you know, the, the whole French-English definition of Canada perhaps didn't make as much sense. Uh, there were a lot of English speakers, of course, uh, but there were also a lot of settlers coming from Eastern Europe. So there was a very different understanding of, of the importance of French to the country. Another example would be, you know, very different economic interests that came into play. And so I think what happened, my read of what happened is that over time, there became a sort of a sense of economic exploitation 
out of the prairies and sort of a sense that their voices weren't being heard, uh, that their voices weren't being considered. And so we start to see a lot of efforts in Western Canada to try to remedy this. New federal political parties, you know, really strong premiers, separatist movements that were, you know, rather weak, a lot of calls for policy changes, all these sorts of things. But, you know, at the core was this, this sort of complaint that the definition of, of our country wasn't something that, that really represented the entirety of the country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in your essay, you mentioned there's the obvious political and economic debates happening, but it signifies a deeper cultural malaise. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, it's it's in some ways. Um, and for people who are listening, who have lived in, in Western Canada or who have lived in the prairies, they'll, they'll probably immediately have a, a good sense of what I'm talking about. And for people outside Western Canada, I, I find it's often a bit of a mystery. But it's, it's this sort of default assumption that the West is sort of at best going to be ignored and at worst going to be exploited, uh, taken advantage of. Uh, not respected, those sorts of things. So there, there's sort of a often a, a very default assumption of non-inclusion. And it doesn't mean that it's dominant in people's thinking. It's like people go about their lives and things are things are fine. But when when political events happen, it is sort of the natural lens through which national politics is viewed. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you mentioned that it's it's hard for people from Eastern provinces to understand the kind of cultural malaise that's happening. And that was something that I don't understand. I'm from Eastern provinces. And I mean, I learned something from you that was, you know, the symbol of Canadian culture is the maple leaf. But the maple leaf doesn't grow past a certain point in Manitoba, correct? Yeah, it might grow in, in certain parts of, of, of BC. But I, I know the first time I actually saw actual maple leaves uh, was when I went to went to Ontario. And I was like, Oh, these are cool. I had no idea they were so big. Uh, and, uh, and it was quite exciting for me um, to to see. And I mean, it wasn't something that uh, like I, I, I don't think any of us look at the, the flag and we're like, Oh, you picked the wrong tree. But um, it, it's just sort of I, I find it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. And it's curious. I think ultimately, there's been a failure to to sort of expand our understanding of of Canada and and you know th- there's a there's an opportunity to bring more regional perspectives in uh, also other forms of diversity absolutely uh, but sort of re-examining that that default definition and that's not to say that 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 our current understandings of, of Canada are wrong but perhaps they could be could be a bit more inclusive. Perhaps there's a way to consider how we do things, um, and and to also have some sensitivity to the fact that uh, that this lens exists in in Western Canada, and you know that that certain things are going to be seen in through that lens. And so then the question is, well, you know, how do we make sure that policy decisions are are being seen as being being balanced and fair? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the the crux of this is that there's now in 2021, there's the West wants out, right? So how can you kind of connect the, the foundations of Canada being centralized to Ontario and Quebec, and then that transitions into the West wants out? The real symbolism of what uh, Western alienation was for a very long time was in the Reform Party slogan in the 1990s, which was that the West wants in. And sort of that, I, I think that sort of captured this, this sense of, of, you know, being part of something and at the same time being excluded. 
Mm. And it's, it's sort of a sentiment that was, that was very powerful. What was interesting, though, is that, you know, over time, as Western Canada, I'd say over the, the 2000s, you know, Western Canada really started to, to come into its own politically and, and economically. And, uh, and that's taken a step back with with number of economic changes. But, you know, there was there was sort of an emboldening of a lot of Western political culture. And, you know, the extent to which that West wants in continues to resonate is, is I think, something that's, that's an important question. We're certainly seeing a lot of sentiment of, well, you know, we tried, we tried being in the, the fundamentals still didn't change. And so then there's pockets of, of sort of separatist rhetoric uh, that uh, that one certainly hears. Mm-hmm. I, I should note as well that uh, that Western Canada is not alone in this. So I, I look at things through the lens of, of Western Canada. I, I study that. But anyone listening from Atlantic Canada, and particularly Newfoundland and Labrador, might might have a sense of, of some of these similar sentiments from, from a different geographic and, and historical standpoint. Absolutely same thing, uh, you know, in terms of Quebec. And I, I find it uh, interesting uh, when I when I talk to people in Ontario, uh, if they're if they're not from you know, Toronto, Ottawa area, they often have that sort of same sentiment even within the province. Uh, and so you know, it's it's sort of this this larger question of yes, we've got sort of these dominant population centers, and you know, even to this day, Central Canada is where the the bulk of the population in Canada resides. But how do we have a, a definition and a practice of Canada that that feels inclusive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can completely relate to what you're saying about, uh, you know, there is some alienation even within provinces. You know, I'm from a very small town, Prince Edward County uh, in Ontario, and it's about two hours away from Toronto. But even still, my parents growing up told me, well, the province governs for Toronto. So there is even just within provinces, a real urban and rural divide. And it's because that's where a majority of the political seats are. It's where a majority of the population is. And, you know, almost rightfully so, it's where they focused most of their attention because that's where the people are. And so, I mean, how do you stop this feeling of, you know, we're left out when this is where all the people are, when it almost, you know, you know, as, as, as annoying as it is, it almost makes sense that that's where they have to focus the attention. Yeah, I... I I, th- I think it's a great challenge. One one idea I have that that I've put out in the in the essay is is to actually get the federal government out to other parts of the country. And so we certainly see this kind of uh, decentralization of government uh, occurring in a number of other countries. Uh, this has been a big move in in the United Kingdom. And perhaps there's some opportunities that we see coming out of COVID to have a greater fed- federal presence across Canada. In other parts of Ontario and Quebec, uh, in in Saskatchewan, in BC, and, and so on, New Brunswick, there's been uh, there's been some some great success stories uh, that we've seen in decentralizing some aspects of of the federal government, and you know perhaps there's an opportunity to to do that a bit more. So that's the type of thing that I think it'd be useful to consider of consider you know are are there different ways of us doing business uh, as as a country that would allow for sort of a, a sense of, of greater inclusion. Is it difficult for us as, a, as this continent-sized country to spread out our capital, or has COVID-19 kind of given us that opportunity? Um, well, so I'll, I'll kind of flip it. I'll, I'll actually uh, 
repose your, your question. The United Kingdom, which is a much more geographically concentrated country, despite that, still feels a need to, to spread out government mm -hmm. to have greater connection. So being a, such a larger country, I, you know, I would argue maybe that suggests that we have an even more of a need mm -hmm. uh, to do so. I mean, we, we have different, very different lived realities across this mm -hmm. country based on place and, you know, making sure that that understanding of those realities is is present in our in our policy making, I think is is a very important thing to do. You know, I, I think there is a lot of opportunity to to draw upon the technology and, and the learnings that we've had in over COVID, but even prior to allow the federal government to have a, a greater presence across Canada and to draw upon talent pools uh, across across the country as well. I'd see it as, as an opportunity to potentially reinforce bilingualism across mm -hmm. Canada as people have greater incentive to to learn other official languages because there's more opportunities for them. So th there are examples of, of where it's worked. And so I think the federal government could easily take a look and say, okay, well, you know, how, how come this worked out so successfully with veteran affairs that we were able to put that into Charlottetown and, and have that work? How come we were able to decentralize uh, parts of Revenue Canada and make that work? And are there other parts that we can? I mean, there might be some parts that cannot for very mm -hmm. good reason. But to, to start by asking these types of questions, I think presents an opportunity for more voices in the federal government, but also for, for greater connection to the federal government. So lobbying and community groups, if they have more ability to connect with the federal government, then, then the federal government gets to hear different perspectives, a greater range of, of perspectives. Mm -hmm. The decisions might be the exact same, but, but the sense of, of inclusion in the process uh, might benefit greatly from that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, we've seen that moving veteran affairs to Charlottetown didn't collapse the system, it didn't collapse the government, and you know, th things function normally. And I mean, you even take it a bit further and you suggest different institutions that almost make more sense to be in Western Canada, for example, Parks Canada, should be in Alberta because it's where a majority of the national parks are. Yeah, so I was uh, actually drawing upon, uh, this was something that was a point that was made to the the Fair Deal panel in uh, in Alberta. So they had a panel looking at, at things that could be done to address Alberta's place in the Confederation is, is how they put it. You know, and there, and there might be, there might be different, different things or different parts of things. So I'll, I'll give an example of agriculture and agri-food. And, you know, aspects of that would make a lot of sense on the prairies. Other aspects of that make a lot of sense in, in central Canada, I mean, the dairy industry. And, um, and so, you know, but there might be ways to think of, of well, are, are there some elements in whole or in part that might work as effectively or more effectively elsewhere? Mm. And, you know, what might be the benefits of that? And I mean, you have a, a second suggestion as well, which is kind of tackling one of the most politicized uh, topics in, in Canada at the moment, which is these equalization payments. And specifically, this is politicized between Alberta and Quebec. Now, what are, is your suggestion for kind of quelling the, the political heat around this? Yeah, so, so equalization is, uh, is a real lightning rod issue in, uh, in many provinces. Mm. And uh, my, my idea there, and it's, it's something that a lot, of, a lot of people put out, but my idea there is, is to establish a permanent expert panel on equalization 
to provide advice on on equalization. The formula regularly gets reviewed and, and updated, and you know to to have some arm's length expert panel that obtains public feedback and and provides advice to the federal government in its decision making. I think could could really help in terms of of the thinking that goes into the the decision making, but also in terms of the optics. So one thing that, that's really important to understand about regional discontent and, and Western alienation is there's that it really comes down to perceptions. Uh, and so, you know, it's perceptions of unfairness, perceptions of exploitation, perceptions of disrespect. And because uh, perceptions matter, it's not just the policy outcome that matters. It's, it's the process that was taken to get there. And making sure that that process is seen as fair is, I think, as important as a fair outcome. So if steps are taken to create this clarity, this transparency of, of how uh, decisions were made, my hope would be that, uh, that some of the politicization of that could be reduced. Now, it, I think it's still going to be a political football because it's, it's convenient. Uh, it's a very convenient political football. People don't understand uh, how equalization works. But to to be able to, at the very least, be able to point to the fact that, you know, this was this was advice uh, from nonpartisan interests and, you know, from a, a regionally representative expert panel, I think would go a long way. I want to come back to this idea of hyper-politicized topics, because, like, Equalization at its core is a very boring topic, but somehow it's become this like red hot issue. Absolutely. And I mean, that is because some politicians are seeing it as a way to use this to their advantage to get reelected and to say, I'm sticking up for you. But I mean, that is really at its core still just a manifestation. Mm -hmm. These politicians being elected on this is just manifestation of what you mentioned being you know, 1867. Is that right? Yeah, like you, you can't push a button if the button doesn't exist. And so you like the the thing about Western alienation, the thing about regional discontent is it's it's very emotionally. Uh, there's there's an emotional core to it, uh, a sense of a sense of anger, a sense of frustration, and so if political actors can find something that they can use to to point to, 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 to activate that emotion, uh, it can be very effective for them. And so, you know, the, there's this long-standing sense of, of economic exploitation in, in, in the Prairie provinces in particular, and then that uh, extends out to, to BC as well. And, you know, it, it predates the Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, becoming provinces. Like, this is a very long-standing sentiment. And if an issue can be cast as as economic exploitation, then it it resonates uh, because it it fits a narrative that is and a storyline that uh, that has very a very long history, and so it's easy I think for for a politician to to say oh, well, you know, we are we are being taken advantage of, and there's a particular I think Alberta Quebec tension that uh, that comes into into play you know there's there's a narrative that politicians can play up you know we're sending money from alberta to quebec and you know this goes back to a very different understanding of of the importance of mm. of of 
French and English in the in the history of the country and in the founding of the country. And you know, so so it all kind of it, it has a very a very long history. And what I, I guess I find frustrating myself as a as a someone who studies Western discontent is, you know, it'll it bubbles, it ebbs and flows, you know, it's we've got pockets of time where where it's not an issue and then other pockets of time where it's a, a big issue. And every time it's uh, it sort of bubbles up again, uh, there's there's a lot of people who, who are very surprised by this. And and it seems all new. It's all new again. And I always wonder, well, why is that? Um, you know, it's 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 a very long standing thing. And then there's a tendency to say, oh well it's it it's bubbled up because of this specific policy. And so this specific policy is the issue. And for me it's it's like, well no, the reaction to the policy is actually expressing a sentiment that, that exists long before this policy, long before the people who wrote this policy were born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that that there's there's a larger story going on here. I want to focus in on something you mentioned being that if, if it fits the narrative, then there will be a government or a political party that will want to exploit it. And I mean, it, my concern is that if there's a federal government extending a hand and a provincial government slapping it away because it benefits them politically, I mean, that that won't resolve anything. So I wonder what role provincial government has in in healing this Western alienation. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And as a as a political scientist, I see one of the the points of a of a governing party is, uh, or of any political party is is they want to seek elections so they can obtain their ends. And so the fact that a political actor sees something that's going to benefit them, like to me, that just seems like a, a natural thing that they would do. And so then the question becomes, well, how does the federal government sort of try to invoke greater attachment to the federal government Mm. to, I I used an analogy earlier, you know, that there's a button to push. How do you make the button smaller? Uh, Is there a way to make the the button less convenient to push? To have a a national definition uh, that that people really, really see themselves in, uh, to to try to facilitate partnerships, um, to, to have a connection with Canadians across the country. And again, you know, having that federal presence is something that could could potentially be helpful Mm. on that front. You know, I I think it's a challenge when Mm. when the federal government seems far away and and it is far away. I I guess I would I I wonder, you know, there's the question of, well, you know, is it the is it provincial government's jobs to Mm. to address Western alienation? And I'm not sure it is. You know, in, in sort of an ideal world, uh, we'd see everybody cooperating and getting along. And, and we do have examples of, of premiers who, who did try to do that. Um, so um, I'd say anytime the federal government can, can find a premier that's willing to, to work with them like that, uh, they, should, they should work and run. But, you know, a lot of it's, a lot of it's relationships. I was really struck in, uh, on the Saskatchewan side in you know, immediately after the last federal election, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe was mm-hmm. speaking uh, very, in a very confrontational way to to Prime Minister Trudeau and and you know at the federal government and and then uh, and then Christian Freeland was put on the file, and the the tone mm-hmm. shifted dramatically uh, because of the personal relationship 
that, that you had and, you know, same government. And so, you know, some of it is politics is a delicate sport and, you know, some of it's policy and, and some of it's working on those relationships behind the scenes. But, but yeah, I'd say ultimately the onus is on the federal government side. It's not up to the provincial mm-hmm. governments to, to solve mm-hmm. this. And it is, it is easy pickings for them if they want to use it. Well, Professor Burdal, I mean, as, as somebody who's lived in Toronto, Ottawa, and now Montreal, I have certainly learned a lot from you and your essay. <laughs> so thank you for joining me today. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And I, I hope you get out to get out to Western Canada. I think uh, I think one thing that would be great uh, for, for all of us in Canada is if we spent more time in other parts of the country and got a sense of, of what a magnificent place this is. Um, one thing I'd just like to end on, just because uh, we were talking about Western alienation, Please. and that's the focus of of, of what we're talking about. Um, but I, I would hate for anyone listening to to think that uh, that there isn't a strong attachment and Canadian identity in in Western Canada. I think it's it's very robust, and in many ways, I'd say Western alienation is is oddly enough evidence of that. That there's sort mm-hmm. of a a real desire to be part of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sort of a frustration that that emerges when there's a, a sense that it's not being included in the way that that it wants. But you know, we're talking about sort of a, a negative sentiment, uh, and at the mm-hmm. same time, I think there's there's a lot of very positive sentiment towards Canada. So. Yeah, I think that's a great way of looking at it. Thank you so much again. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's great to talk to you. I want to say thanks again to Professor Lolene Birdall for joining me today. If you're interested in reading her essay, you can do so at the Center of Excellence's website at center.irpp.org. The title of that essay is The Persistence of Western Alienation. If you would like to get into contact with us, please do so on social media under the handle IRPP. And if you'd like to send me a message, you can do so on Twitter at Colm F. O'Sullivan. That's C-O-L-M-F O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening.